Man, it is good to be back here with you today and, and studying uh, God's Word together. I just want to go ahead and, and kind of lay out that what we have here in 6 through 16 is uh, a little bit of a confusing passage. And so if you read ahead last week and just thought, what in the world? Um, it's okay. Hopefully you won't leave feeling the same way uh, today. If you do, uh, we have a money-back guarantee. Yes, that's great. That's great. You just see the cashier on the way out. Uh, now, Paul has been talking for the last couple of weeks uh, about wisdom. And let me just remind you that there in Corinth, they were enamored with wisdom, just kind of knowing stuff, knowing things, and being able to stand and deliver, be able to be in a room full of people, and to lead them in some type of, <coughs> excuse me, some type of bold challenge that would lead them responding in applause and cheer. And so if you feel so moved today, just have at it. But that was, that was kind of what the, the sophists sought to do. And so Paul's been moving around and just kind of systematically taking wisdom apart and showing it its right place in the world. And so if you look back in chapter 1, uh, really there in verse 19, speaking of God, he said, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I'll thwart. So he's quoting Isaiah there. And so just saying that he's going to bring all of these things to nothing. He's going to have them to be nothing more than just uh, more refuse tossed on the ash heap of this world. He goes on in uh, verse 20, and it says, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. And so he speaks to a community that just says wisdom is the highest thing. Like for somebody to step in and say, I'm wise, would be what they would set their hearts, what they would set their affections on. And then Paul says, look, this is what God has done. He has upended. He has brought to nothing the wisdom of this world. He's destroying it. He's destroying their discernment. So it seems odd then because he's kind of entered into this deal, and he's told them, that look, not many of you are wise. In, in essence, not many of you are very bright. Not many of you are, are all that accomplished, according to the people in your community. And then he steps in, and what he's told them immediately before this is, look, when I came to you, I didn't seek to be recognized as wise. When I came to you and I spoke, he begins in chapter 2, I didn't do so in some compelling argument where you would hear it and say, you know, this Paul guy, I think he's really onto something. I think we should buy into this. His argument's so much better than the sophists. It's so much better than the Epicureans. It's so much better than anybody else we've heard. Let's buy into his argument. So he said he was decided to know nothing among them except Christ crucified. Everybody say Christ crucified. So that's all he endeavored to know. That's all he endeavored to embody. That's all he endeavored to display. So it's fascinating. It's interesting that when Paul opens up this passage here in verse 6, look what he says. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Let's read 6 through 16 together, or attempt to anyway, and then we'll walk through it. Paul writes and says, yet among the, among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the foundations for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As we open this up, we recognize that he's saying a terrific amount about wisdom, but he's also seeking to incorporate uh, the spirit and bring the spirit into this discussion. So when you might look at it and seek to understand it, recognize this, that a life yielded to the spirit produces wisdom. A life yielded to the spirit produces wisdom. Now I want you to understand that the spirit of God in his interplay within humanity has always been the course of God. It's always been the path or trajectory, the idea of God to invest in these things. This isn't something Paul sat down and said, you know what's really just going to cook their noodles? Let me tell them that wisdom is, is kind of passe, but the spirit of God, let me just kind of substitute some things around there. This isn't an idea that Paul has come to. The prophet Ezekiel speaking on the part of God in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24. Listen to what he says. This is helpful. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all uncleanliness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put it within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when Jesus arrives on the scene, John chapter 3 gives us this compelling picture of a man named Nicodemus coming to visit with Jesus. Now, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Pharisees, and he comes and sees Jesus by night, and he is talking to him, and it's this really kind of glowing language, and he effectively says, look, we know you've come from God because nobody could do the stuff you're doing unless God equipped them, unless God called them, unless God empowered them. Jesus responds and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is completely flummoxed, has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He's paid him a compliment, and Jesus has entered into what appears to Nicodemus to be a little bit of kind of philosophizing, a little bit of just kind of, well, where in the heck did that come from, Jesus? But as Jesus goes on, what we see in this is that Jesus tells us that we cannot remain in the flesh, but we have to be born of the Spirit of God. He tells in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I've said to you. You have to be born again. In the Christian's life, the spirit of God plays an integral role that cannot be divorced from the way that we live life. You see, in the Christian's life, a life yielded to the spirit produces true wisdom. So Paul opens up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, and he says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now, Paul stepped into a room much like this room, and so there's some of you have been Christians uh, for a decade, for two decades, for three decades. But yet, in, in terms of the faith, you've done nothing more than chronicle a whole bunch of Wednesdays and Sundays, spending your time gathered around a bunch of people with their Bibles open. You are still as immature as you were when you began. 
And then we have people in this room, you've been a Christian for a year or two years or three years, and you're incredibly mature because you have submitted your life to Jesus, you have yielded your life to the Spirit, and he has created and you welled up in you tremendous wisdom, and so each and every day is lived on the direction of his Spirit. So when Paul steps into this room, he speaks to a group that is scattered and diverse. You have mature followers and you have immature followers. And so he's not saying, look, I'm just kind of giving up on the immature, but in essence, by imparting this message in front of both of them, he's calling all of them to the higher calling of Jesus. Maturity is obedience to Jesus. Now look what he says. He begins to set apart and distinguish the maturity or the wisdom rather that he's giving to them from the wisdom that they hear in their community. He says, look, we're imparting wisdom, but you need to know something. This is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Coincidentally, these guys and their wisdom is doomed to pass away. So one of the things we recognize about Christian wisdom is that it is eternal. It is lasting. And this separates, this differentiates itself from earthly, from worldly wisdom that is passing, that is fleeting. So you have to kind of put yourself in the situation of these Corinthians. They weren't well-liked by the people in their community. They weren't well-appreciated by the people in their community. And then we begin to kind of explain their worldview and their take on things. They were ridiculed. They were mocked. They were made fun of. And everybody said, well, that doesn't sound very wise. That doesn't sound very sharp. You guys sound like a bunch of idiots. What's wrong with you? So Paul comes to them. He says, you need to understand something. The wisdom I'm imparting to you makes no sense. It finds no parity. It finds no commonality. It finds no starting place in the people of this world. They're going to hear the things you say, and this is completely, and say, this is completely ludicrous, but you need to understand something. Their wisdom and them, they are doomed to pass away. So he begins to differentiate it again. He begins to come at it again. He says, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. Now, this sounds lovely, doesn't it? This sounds like Paul says, oh, look, I'm going to take this recola. I'm going to put it in my hand. I'm just going to open it. Look, those of you in the front row can see this. Those of you in the back, you can't, even with really exceptional glasses. So he's not talking about some type of unveiled wisdom where he says, look, I'm just going to tell a couple of you, but don't tell anybody. The people in Corinth weren't good secret keepers. He's not testing their ability not to tell people things. I remember when I was a kid, my mom had to quit telling me what we were getting my dad for Christmas, for his birthday, and for Father's Day because I was a horrible secret keeper. The first thing I did when I found out was to tell him, Dad, you'll never guess what we're going to get you, a necktie. Apparently there's a pause. You let them say, no, I couldn't guess. And then you keep it to yourself. I had no ability to do this. When Paul steps in, this secret wisdom of God, it's a secret because the natural man, the lost person, the person who's not been regenerated, the person who doesn't know Jesus cannot understand it. Be like if I went to my two-year-old and I said, let me explain the Pythagorean theorem to you. See, you've got something to do with a triangle and a hypotenuse. And what does he say? Nah! And so with that, it's pretty close. You got it. The natural man, the, the lost person, cannot understand this. We can't win people to faith in Jesus by convincing them of the truth, the veracity of these things. It's the work of the Spirit. So he says, we impart to you a secret and hidden wisdom, secret and hidden wisdom of God. See, it's even difficult to say. Look what Paul gives us in verse 23 of chapter 1. He says, we preach Christ crucified. And what is that? He says, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly. It's foolishness. It's stupidity to the Greeks. But to those who are called. In essence, if you hear Christ crucified, and you're not tripping over that, and you're not saying that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and you're not rebelling against that, 
He says, for those who are saved, both these Jews who stumble over it and these Greeks who say it's complete and stupidity, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The secret, his, the secret hidden wisdom of our God is that he took on flesh. He came and he dwelled among us. He was put to death at the hand of his creation in the most horrid and despicable way possible by being crucified. And this is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, which is so much better and surpassing than the wisdom of man. And we go on to find out, he says, look, this is the wisdom of God, which is decreed before the ages. In essence, God is looking at humanity and saying, oy vey, I'm just not sure what to do. This is not what he did. It's not that God said, look, everything's just a complete and utter mess. I tried flooding them. That didn't fix it. I tried doing some other things. That didn't fix it. Let me just throw a Hail Mary and go down there and see if I can set it right myself. This is not what God has done. The picture that God gives us is that from eternity past, from before all existence, it was always the plan of God. It was always in the economy of God that his son, that God in flesh, that God himself would be put to death by the hand of his creation. In essence, by my sin and by your sin. But that's just fascinating time. That God decreed that this would always be his wisdom, that it would always be foolishness. And then look what he says. He says, for our glory. And it says, Jesus being put to death is for my good. And Jesus being put to death is for your good. And Jesus being put to death is for your enemy's good. And Jesus being put to death is for the most vilest, horrible, horrific person you may ever begin to think of. It is for their good. It is for their glory. And it makes no sense to them. This is why he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Acts 3.17 and other places tell us in the, amidst these amazing uh, early sermons in this gathered church, and they say, look, and you crucified Jesus, but you had no idea what you were doing. If they had known, if they had their eyes open, if their hearts had been awakened, if their, if their souls had been invigorated, certainly they wouldn't have done this, but they didn't know, and so they entered into this atrocity. They crucified the Lord of glory. <coughs> Look what he says. But as it is written, no eye seen, no ears heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In essence, look, you, you could have looked anywhere you wanted and you could have searched and listened to all the various arguments of man and you could have applied yourself to the most imaginative thinking. We could have enrolled Pixar and, and anybody else you wanted to get in there and people just kind of think outside the box and they never would have thought of this. They never would have imagined this. They never would have planned for this. And God had this planned from the beginning of time immemorial. For who? For those who love him. You see, to love God isn't to be caught up in some type of emotional fondness and feeling for him, but to love him is to bind to his wisdom and to seek to be obedient to him. God has changed and transformed our hearts to where we're not just the people who say the right things, but we're people who believe the right things about God. His spirit comes into us and he transforms our right belief into right action. We move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. 
He's transformed our thoughts. He's transformed our minds. And we yield ourselves to him to produce much fruit and true wisdom and obedience to him. Paul goes on and in essence, he enters into a little bit of uh, defense to the first Corinthians, this church there in Corinth in this book of first Corinthians, kind of how he knows these things, how he has seen these things. So he says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, how has Paul come to know this? How has Paul come to know that this is what God is doing and this is what true wisdom is and these, this is how these things work together? Paul, very much the same way that, that Peter writes, and Peter gives us an insight into how Scripture comes about, how the Word of God comes about. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. So I go home this afternoon, I sit down, I'm reading my Bible, and I come up with something fantastic, and next Sunday I come back and I share it. And you say, well, I've never heard that before. I'm like, oh, this is my take, but this is so much better than what you read here. What are you supposed to do? Go pick up those offering plates and beat me over the head until I'm gone. Like, run me out of this room. If you hear me or somebody else say something that doesn't accord with Scripture, quit listening. Stop. God has given you his spirit so that you might know his word, but he's given his spirit to Paul and the other authors of scripture so that it might write his word. Peter goes on. He says, no prophecy was ever produced from the will of man. It's not that they sat down and said, what's the most creative story we can come up with and in the most compelling way that we can write it so that everybody reads it and says, oh, this has to be true. This is so much better than what we've heard. Never came about by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through Paul to the church in 1 Corinthians, and here we are reading their words 2,000 years later. But how did he come to know them? Paul says we came to know them. We came to know them. We knew them because the Holy Spirit searched out everything, even the depths of God. And so what we see in here is that Paul is giving us this understanding that the Holy Spirit and God are the same. He's giving us this, this early kind of triune understanding. Just as the Son was crucified and God ordains everything, the Spirit is fulfilling these things. And the Spirit, the one who's giving the words of Paul to write, is, is even examining the depths of God. So he gives us an example. He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? And so if I walked up to any of you in this room right now at this very moment, I couldn't know what's going on in your mind. Perhaps it's lunch. Perhaps it's what in the world is he saying? Or why does his voice sound so strange? Uh, but there's no way I could possibly know unless you told me. Yeah, and, and you see this happen over and over and over again. Yesterday, I'm in the kitchen and we're, we're putting up groceries and Graham runs over and he grabs a Walmart sack and I have no idea what he's thinking. But then I hear what he's thinking. He said, Bryce, why don't you go take this bag and jump off your bunk bed? It'll be a parachute for you. No, this is just ludicrous, right? There's no wisdom to that. But I knew what he was thinking because he is much like me. There's just no, mm. He thinks it, he says it. He thinks it, he says it. He says it, then he thinks, oh, I should have thought. But who can know a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? The Holy Spirit is God. It's not some mysterious force. He is a personal being. And he's integrally related to you. So Paul goes on and he says, he says, look, no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. And you're like, whoa, I can't know God. Only the Spirit knows the thoughts of God. 
But look what he says. Nobody can know God except for the Spirit of God, but now we have received not the Spirit of the world. You haven't received common sense and all these things from the world to help you navigate Christianity. You've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Do you understand this? Now, this church in Corinth, they were so captivated by the manifestations of these various gifts of the Spirit that they completely forgot and paid attention to that they are each and every one indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the same is true for us today. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, His Spirit resides in you. Now, think about that. Be blown away by that. Go to lunch and don't shut up about that. God, who created all things, who upholds all All things. He's keeping this whole thing spinning around. His spirit, he himself, resides in each and every Christian. If you are a Christ follower, there's no following your way. There's no coming up with best ideas. There's a life fully yielded in submission to his spirit. He resides inside of you. He guides you. He provides for you. You've not received the spirit of this world, so quit acting like it. Quit setting your hopes and dreams on the things of this world, but allow the spirit to guide you and to set your, your heart, to set your affections, to guide your obedience. Now, why has he given us his spirit? Well, several reasons, but according to this passage, he just looks at one. God's given us his spirit so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It takes the spirit of God living inside you to fully appreciate salvation. You can communicate the gospel to a lost person. You can tell them that humanity rebelled against God in the fall. God created everything. Humanity rebelled against him. That God has sent a rescuer, his son Jesus, and he has redeemed us with his blood. They can say this sounds amazing and too good to be true, but they can't receive it and understand it unless the Spirit moves within them. And so he wants us to understand the things freely given us from him. God wants you to fully understand salvation. He wants you to walk in light of it, and he wants you to walk in obedience and guidance of his Spirit. Look what he goes on to say, and this is really similar to what he said in verse 10. He says, we impart this not in words taught by wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In essence, he says, look, you understand, it's me and my apostolic buddies. We didn't get around and say, what's a really compelling way we can convince these people to quit being idiots and start doing the right thing? That's not what Paul did, although maybe that would have worked. Instead, he said, we didn't receive this from humans. In essence, Paul said, look, the Holy Spirit came to me and told me what I need to say to you. And you and I read that as the book of 1 Corinthians. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Man, I've got a lot of friends that are very spiritual. They believe in nature. They believe in the power of mystical forces. They believe in the good inside themselves and in others. When we lived in Prague, the most ridiculous thing we came across was a group of people that believed in the flying spaghetti monster. But what we see here is what we receive is the word of God, and we learn it, we understand how to apply it, not because we're brilliant people, but because we're governed and indwelled by the Spirit of God. Now, you don't understand, verse 14, he says, well, what about the lost person that hears this? He says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. And you say, why not? It sounds like a good thing. It sounds like a sure bet. Why would a lost person reject this? Why would a person who comes Sunday after Sunday reject this? Why would a person who hears the gospel reject this? Why would they not believe this? 
It says because they're folly to him. They make no sense. But you need to understand something. They are not able to understand them according to verse 14. And how frustrating is it to share the gospel with a family member or a friend over years and have them just like, man, you just, they just don't hear it. They just don't understand it. And you're like, I'm not, not a bright person, but somehow I get this. The guy that shared the gospel with me wasn't particularly eloquent. But, but, but I got this. Why don't you understand this? Why don't you care? Why aren't you burdened? Why aren't you overcome? Why aren't you grieving? It's your sin and the breach of fellowship between you and God. Why are these things not moving you? It's because they can't be naturally understood. Some of the most brilliant Bible scholars across this world are incredibly lost. They know Greek and Hebrew in the Old Testament period, the New Testament period, better than any of us could ever hope to. And if we dedicated ourselves to spend the rest of our life studying scriptures, we could never know them as well as they do. But we understand them because we have the Spirit of God. Do you recognize how that completely takes away one-upmanship? How that completely takes away factionalism within a church? Somebody says, oh, I, I, I only listen to this person. They're my pastor because they're so much smarter and they have this degree and they say this and they have this following. We're all, every one of us, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the lost drug dealer who comes in here and comes to faith, to the person who's been a sage over the course of their life, and they've never once sinned, well, not that we've seen, for 80, 90 years. There is parity, there is a level in there, because we are all indwelt by the Spirit of God, and not two different levels. There is one Spirit, not many. Look what he does in 15 and 16. He says, the spiritual person discerns or judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. Let's look at the last part first because it seems to be wrong. He says he's judged by no one. Well, well Paul tells us uh, in chapter 5 that we need to judge those around us, that there's a guy apparently in their midst who's been up to some things that are unmentionable, and they need to recognize the sin in this person, and they need to handle it. They need to take care of it. In chapter 11, when he's talking about uh, the Lord's Supper, he says we need to look inwardly. And so we recognize that repeatedly in 1 Corinthians and in other books of the Bible that there is an opportunity for examining others, for examining other peoples. In fact, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he had previously written to them and said, look, you need to not spend time around people that are sinful. And so the Corinthians got rid of all their lost friends. So Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians. And he said, I wasn't talking about lost people. I was talking about Christians who, who are acting carnal. These are the folks. And so how would we do this? How would I know that Timer's a heroin dealer on the weekends? I would know this by investing myself in his lives. Sorry, I just looked out there and I thought, who certainly in this room isn't a heroin dealer and it's Timer? <laughs> but if you are, this is a great cover. You got a good thing going on with those senior adult luncheons. Uh, this Thursday at Christ Community Church, for those of you who are like a little heroin or some potluck. Man, I didn't even have any medicine this morning. So he says the spiritual person can be judged by no one. And so he's not talking about uh, our inability or how it's wrong to judge one another. We have to be so incredibly involved in one another's lives that we are discerning and looking in. So I look at Justin and I know, man, you're struggling with this. Like I see things just aren't working well for you. I'm not judging him as in bringing judgment upon him. Or I look at one of the other elders, I look at Dee, I look at Ken, I look at 
look at Philip's life, and it's like, what's going on with you and your spouse? We need to be so incredibly involved that we're able to discern what's going on, and they need to be able to do the same to us. Requires this terrific vulnerability where the Spirit is looking into their lives, and the Spirit is showing them things in my life where we're able to drive one another towards fruitfulness and drive one another to fidelity, to obedience. But look at the first thing he says in verse 15. He says, the spiritual person judges all things. I think a better translation is to discern. There's a shocking lack of discernment amongst Christians. I'm not talking about our body necessarily, although that's certainly true for some of us. There's a shocking lack of discernment. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Whenever you see somebody post some asinine article or you see somebody say something that sounds incredibly compelling, you aren't compelled to believe it. Do you understand me? Use some discernment. Man, read the word, know the word, and then apply it to those things you hear. We have no shortage of abilities of ways to communicate, both in person, on the internet, via the mail if you're a politician lately, but we have no shortage of ways to communicate. We have a shocking lack of discernment when it comes to, to looking at somebody's ministry and saying, are, are the things they're saying, I mean, they, they seem really good, they seem amazing, and I want these things to be true, but do they accord with sound teaching and doctrine? Can I find these same things said, or am I able to get to these same things by closely looking at Scripture and then comparing it to other places in the Bible? This is what our calling is to. It's not that we would have five or six people amongst us that we would see something and say, uh, hey, uh, Melanie, is this right? Like, should I believe this? Melanie says, what's wrong with you? No, there is no Nigerian prince who just needs a little bit of help getting his money out. If you just send him your bank account, he'll transfer millions of dollars to you. Are you kidding me? But we seem repeatedly to buy in to the spiritual equivalent of this, that God only wants for us to be happy and healthy. And so whenever we're not happy, whenever we're not healthy, whenever bad things happen to us or the people around us, we're destroyed. But nowhere in Scripture do we see this promise that things are going to be so much better for us who believe in Jesus. In fact, repeatedly we see that Jesus is absolutely the world's worst salesman when it comes to being a Christ follower because he says, if you follow me, you'll be persecuted. Imagine going out on a date with somebody and saying, if you date me, man, it's going to be like Poverty City. It's going to be terrible. You're going to be paying for all the bills. I got lice. <laughs> I've never bathed. And she says, I love you. And then you find out she has all the same things and she's blind. And you're like, you just don't measure up. But this is kind of what Jesus has done, right? He says, look, you have eternal life, but it's to suffer alongside. It's to be obedient. It's to die to self. It's to live this cruciform life. Come and take your cross and follow me. Not to some beach resort, but to wherever Jesus calls you. He has laid claim to you. His spirit resides in you. And frequently we find ourselves fulfilling the deeds of the flesh instead of fulfilling the mandates of the spirit. A life yielded to the Spirit produces true wisdom. A life yielded to the wisdom of this world produces chaos. Look at how he ends in verse 16, this really odd statement. He says, 
For who is, here he asked the question, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And everybody would say, no one. He says, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And we would all say, no one. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We live in a fallen and depraved world. We live in a world that when you tell people, man, I give up my Sundays and Wednesdays and I go on mission trips and I give 10% of my income away and I, that's just my tithe and then I give an offering on top of that and I give to all these various enterprises and I give in all these various ways of my time and I give in all these other various ways of my talent. And I don't do it so that people would look at me and say, you are amazing. In fact, I do it in secret. I do it so that, no, that no, nobody or almost nobody knows that I do these things. The world hears it and says, well, what in the world good is that? If nobody can congratulate you on your goodness and your, your accomplishments, if nobody can look at you and be impressed and think that you've somehow arrived and then want to be like you, what good is it for you to do these things? They won't understand you, but that's Okay. Some of us are in the midst of relationships and our spouse doesn't understand us. Our kids don't understand us. They're what Paul's referred to in this passage as the natural man. They are the natural woman. They can't understand you. They can't understand your change in priorities. They can't understand your change of focus. Why? Because they do not have the spirit in them. It doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them deficient doesn't mean you pity them and say, ha, I've got God's spirit, because that would be an odd voice to use. It doesn't make you say these things or act this way. It makes you be obedient to God before them. Why? So they'll see that you live a life under the conviction of the spirit as directed by the spirit, that the things you read and believe you abide with. The world is full of plenty of people who can quote scripture. Our communities are full of plenty of people who can quote scripture. Our churches are full of plenty of people who attend church regularly. What it's not full of is people who abide with him. Who show true spiritual wisdom. Who hear the hard teachings of Jesus and stick with it. Who are ready and willing to suffer who are ready and willing to testify. They won't understand it. But his spirit is using your obedience, the things you do, your manner of, of work, your manner of life around them, and it's using your testimony, the things you say to them. And both of those messages put together are oddly compelling. But one of those messages on their own is incredibly incomplete. If I'm incredibly obedient to God, but I never interact with a lost person, how are they able to know? Like, I'm just a well-mannered person in the South. That's how you were raised. And if all I ever do is tell them what they're doing wrong and point these things out, I'm these Pharisees they've heard about, or I'm like every church person they've ever known. We love them. We demonstrate the wisdom in the, and we demonstrate the obedience to God. And we communicate the love of God. Just know this, that the wisdom of God, this crucified son, wasn't set up so that all the truly good people 
who would give their Sunday mornings to come to church might receive faith in him. The crucified Jesus was given for the worst among us. This is why Paul repeatedly counts himself amongst the most vile of sinners. Let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you're a lost person, you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, and the thought is running through your mind that there are enough good things that you can do to get to God. There's enough things that you can understand. If I just understood the Bible a little bit more, if I just had some more of these pieces kind of move together in my life, if I just quit making these same stupid mistakes, then I'd be ready to come to him. The natural man can never come to Jesus. You can never come to Jesus that way. It requires rebirth. It requires a yielded life to be indwelt by his spirit. So this is what he calls you to do. He calls you to cry out and say, Lord, save me from the wisdom that I formerly employed. Save me from my sin. Save me from goodness. Save me from self-sufficiency. But save me now. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your wisdom is not able to be understood in our own power, in our own accomplishments. But the wisdom we have comes from you, is brought to us by your Spirit. And so, God, I pray for those of us who love Jesus, who have submitted our lives to him, that we would spend our days discerning your spirit and its guidance for our lives. Help us not to live according to worldly wisdom, the accomplishments of man, but help us to do the, the unthinkable and the unlikely. As the leading of your spirit enacts and commands obedience in our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.